If you have a Bible, if you'd open it to 1 Samuel 30, so we're going to preach our second message out of 1 Samuel 30, looking at the life of David, and we'll title today's message, David Recovered All. David Recovered All. 1 Samuel 30. So the last time we looked at how David was rejected by the Philistine lords from fighting with the Philistines against Saul and Israel. And King Achish liked David. David went and lived with him, and Achish gave him some land in the southern part of Israel at Ziklag. When David was down there, he'd use that territory where he was at in the southern part of the Philistine kingdom to launch some raids on some enemies of Israel. But he would tell Achish, oh, no, I was helping you out. And he was deceiving him when he was down there. And he wiped out the entire city when he attacked those so no one could snitch on him and tell him what he'd been up to. And he plundered all of those cities. But when it came to fighting against his own people, and he met with all the Philistines' lords, they're telling him, not this time. Because we remember that number one hit, as we talked about last time, that they were singing here, that Saul killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And you're not going to kill any more of us by being right in the middle of us and getting back in favor with Saul by wiping us out. So, sorry, David, but you're going to have to go back home, even though you marched up here. You're going to have to turn around and march those three days back. And that's what he did. They marched that three-day, 50-mile journey back to Ziglag. And as we said, they were hoping to find their families there. They were hoping for a good meal, probably hoping to have a good steak meal there. And when they get there, they find that everything was burned, including their steaks. And their wives and children were all gone, carried off captive. These guys were battle-hardened men, tough men. They'd seen a lot of hard times, but their families being gone, that was more than they could handle. And it said they lifted up their voices, including David. And Joab and all these men, they lifted up their voices and wept at the sight that they see until it says they could weep no more, had no more strength to weep. Rebellion was in the air. The men that were with him, because some of them were some rough guys, and they talked about stoning David, and trouble was brewing. And what did David have to do? We talked about at the end. He had to encourage himself in the Lord, didn't he? He had a tough time staring at him. And how did he do that? We said he reminded himself of God's promises is one way he did that. And the other way he encouraged himself in the Lord was by seeking God's face. Now, I'll say that was pretty much, when you look at David's life, the reason he's called a man after God's own heart, it's not that he didn't make mistakes, because we'll see today, he made a lot of mistakes. When you hear that, a man after God's own heart, you tend to put him up on a pedestal, like we do a lot of people. But listen, everybody, including Paul the Apostle, had to forget some things that were behind and press on forward. Everybody makes mistakes. God has to work things out in our lives. And David made a lot of them. But he would repent, and he basically sought the Lord with things he did. So let's read 1 Samuel 30, and read the first eight verses. And it says in 1 Samuel 30, beginning in verse 1, It came to pass, when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, and smitten Ziklag, and burned it with fire, and had taken the women captives that were therein, they slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. 
And then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed. Why? For the people spake of stoning him because the soul of the people was grieved. It was embittered against David. Every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he, God, answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. But I want to ask a question at the beginning here. I want to ask a question. What brought David to Ziglag in the first place? Did God bring him there? Well, look back. We're in chapter 30. Just look back a few chapters in 1 Samuel 27. And look what it says here. So I said, for the most part, David's life was one to seek the Lord. But look what it says in chapter 27, verse 1. And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. So what we have here is this is one time when David made a move that we don't see him seeking the Lord, do we? Because he's talking to himself. He's talking and devising things in his heart, we read in verse 1. And that is trouble. And I'm just saying one principle we can learn out of this, that it's always trouble when we don't seek the Lord about things we want to do. And we just make plans in our own heart. Now, in his graciousness, like he does with David here, a lot of times he can make our plans work out because we do know it says all things work together for good for those that love the Lord and are called, right? He'll make it all work out. But you may bring some trouble on yourself in doing that. So we need to remember this is not, if you've read the story of David, which I'm sure you had, this is not his first visit to King Achish. Because clear back in 1 Samuel 21, for the same reason, out of fear of Saul, David fled to Achish. What did he have to do to get away from him? You remember? He said he had to act like a crazy man. He realized, man, I'm in trouble here. He thought he was as good as dead. He was greatly afraid and had to act like a, a crazy man. And Achish is like, who is this guy? Just get him out of here. I don't want him anymore. That's the only thing that saved him. So David had to escape, and he went to the cave Agilom, and there the prophet Gad came to him. And you know what his word was? He told him to depart, get out of this land of the Philistines. Now, this is a word from the Lord. You get out of here and you go back into Judah where Saul is. He sent him right back to the man that's chasing his life. Now, that was the word of the Lord for David. Now, he didn't seek the Lord then. That was early on, right after he had escaped from Saul and was on his own. And God was merciful to him. He didn't rebuke him or anything. Just told him, hey, sent that prophet there, said, get you back into the land of Judah, which is what he did. But here in chapter 20, at this point in his life, David has seen multiple times 
God's faithfulness in delivering him from the hand of Saul. And also by this point, he had had a word from Samuel, from Abigail, from Jonathan, and even from Saul himself had said, you are going to reign in this kingdom. Saul's not going to be able to kill you. He'd had four different times. Samuel the prophet had spent time with him when Saul was after him, had to tell him, look, I anointed you. God is faithful. You will reign on this throne. All of that he's got behind him. He had those promises and the faithfulness of God. And if you remember back in 23, chapter 23, we read last time that when he was strengthened, Jonathan strengthened, it says, his heart in the Lord. For example, here's what Jonathan told David. He said, fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find thee, and you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to thee, and that also my father Saul knows. He told him that. That was a word from the Lord. And Saul himself knew it. If you're in chapter 27, just look up at the last verse of chapter 26 and look what Saul himself said. And then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. Thou shalt both do great things and also shalt still prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. So right after that, though, next thing we read is David is like, in his heart, surely Saul's going to kill me. Where is he getting that from? And the problem is, he's been nine chapters and a lot of years on the run. And these men with him, they have wives and they all have children. And David's getting weary of running. His men are getting weary of running and are wanting a break. Isn't that what happens sometimes? You just think, man, I've just been through one trial after another. I just kind of like a break. And you kind of quit pressing in. And that's what David did. And he compromises. And just like we have done a lot of times, he makes friends with the world. And what is he doing? We're reading here. He is reasoning in his heart, it says. He's not looking at the promises. Reasoning in his heart. Well, let me ask you, before we criticize David too much, we haven't been through what he's been through, let me ask you a couple questions. Is it easier to seek God's face or watch a movie or talk or sleep? Or a lot of other things. Which is easier to do? I'll answer that. I could ask myself that. John, which is it easier to do? Well, it's easier to talk. It's easier to watch a movie. It's easier to do a lot of things than seek the Lord. Amen. That's what I think. Or let me ask you, is it a lot of times easier to trust God's promises when we have a trial facing us? <laughs> or just reason in your heart about things and not the promises? Isn't it? It's a whole lot easier to reason things out, what you should do. And then, guess what happens? We start leaning on our own understanding, and we quit trusting in the Lord with all of our heart, as we know the song goes, right? So, listen, here's the thing about what we read here. So, David wasn't out committing adultery, idolatry, or some gross sin, was he? That wasn't his problem. He's just getting comfortable with the world, is what was happening. And I think David... At this point, when he's in Ziglag, he was in a backslidden state. I believe he was. Kind of like the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. What do we read about that church there? It says this, the Lord tells this church in Ephesus, he doesn't say you're not doing anything right. The Lord tells him, he says, I know your works and your labor and your patience. Oh, the Lord says, I see you're doing things for me and have borne and have patience for my name's sake. You've labored and not fainted. But what does he tell them? 
Nevertheless, he adds at the end, I have somewhat against you. You're doing all these things. They're commendable, but you've left your first love. So the people in Ephesus, they're busy fighting the Lord's battles, just like David was. He's down in the south. He's fighting these enemies of Israel. That's a good thing, isn't it? Wiping out these sworn enemies of the Lord. But yet he'd left his first love. Wasn't seeking God's face in communion like he had be. And you know, that's true for us, right? We can be zealous for a lot of the right things of God and yet not be right with God, can't we? Amen, we can. We can be zealous for sound doctrine and be right about it. Oh, no homosexuals, not in this church. No abortions, don't want anything to do with that. No pornography, you can be taking stands on all of that and still not be right with God. You could be zealous for going to church. Man, I'd never miss a meeting. I read my Bible every day and say my prayers before I go to sleep in case I die. And still not be right with God. You can do all of that stuff, believe me, and still be a friend of the world. And Achish, he liked David. He had to be buddies with him. Look at 1 Samuel 28 too. Look what it says there. We read this last time. And David said to Achish, surely you know what I can do. When I fight, and Achish said to David, therefore will I make you keeper of my head forever. Oh, buddy, I want you to be my bodyguard for life. David, me and you, I get along with you so well, we'll be friends for life, he tells him. Friends for life, David and Achish. Now, that shouldn't be a mixture that's taking place there, should it? You've got a child of God, a child of Abraham, of Abraham's seed, friends, Bosom buddies with a sworn enemy of Israel and God? Something's not right there with that, is it? And what do we have in the New Testament? What does James say in James 4.4? 4? He says, whosoever shall be a friend of the world is what? An enemy of God, isn't it? And so we talked about this last time. We won't turn to it again. I almost would like to, though. It wouldn't hurt. But what's the solution to that with the friendship of the world? God says, He'll give you more grace when you're convicted about that. But he says this in James 4, 7 to 10, submit yourselves to God. That's the solution if you're convicted. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, when you think you can serve the Lord and serve and be friends with the world. He's saying that won't work. Be afflicted and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. And he says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. You realize things aren't right? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And when you do that and get things right with God, what does he go on to say? He, God, will lift you up. He'll be the one to lift you up. And the second question, getting back to 1 Samuel 30, I'd like to ask is, what was the burning of Ziklag? And you'll say, hey, it was obviously the work of the devil. It was the work of those wicked Amalekites. And I wouldn't disagree with you. Well, let me ask you something. Can't God use the devil's children to wake us up? You know what that's known as? Chastisement. Yeah, it happens that way a lot of times. And so David's looking here, we just read it, he's looking at the loss of everything he held dear, his wives, his children, his home, and why? Why did that happen? Because he hadn't sought the Lord and instead had followed his own heart, had gotten in a bad way. 
living in Ziklag. So when you prize the gifts more than the giver, guess what will happen a lot of times? God will take the gifts away. And David's gifts burned, went up in smoke. So, you know, a lot of times we go into Kentucky State Reformatory to preach there on Tuesdays and different times. And you don't know how many times I've heard from prisoners there that I got in here, God woke me up. My coming in here, God, he said, I had everything in that outside world. To them, it was everything. <laughs> they had drugs, women, money, a nice house. And overnight, it's all gone. And here they are. And they're like, that's the only way God could get my attention. And he did. I hear that many times. Now, some guys will say that, and I don't know that God really has ever gotten their attention. But there's a lot of them he really did get their attention. And I think that's happened to us, doesn't it? God will take things away from us in a maybe a lot smaller way. That's a pretty dramatic illustration there, right? But doesn't he do that to us? That's what chastisement's all about. So you can look at this stuff in two ways. You know, you can look at something to where you're just struggling and you're just like, man, just nothing ever seems to work out in my life. Or you can wake up and say, God in his love has brought me to rock bottom to get my attention. No other way you could do that. Because listen, there is nobody, no child, no child of yours or mine would ever call a whipping a whipping of love, would they, when they're getting it? Oh, man, can I have one of those whippings of love? I haven't had one in a while. No, my kids are running the other direction, right? But you can see it that way later, can't you? I came with my parents growing up. My dad gave me plenty of whippings. I didn't like any of them at the time, but I'll tell you what, I look back and my mom was a strict woman. Left all the spanking up to my dad, but she was very strict. A lot stricter than it seemed like a lot of my friends were, and I didn't like it at the time. But when I look back and get older, I'm saying, man, my mom really did love me. And boy, do I, I, you don't know how many times I thanked her from the age of 21 on up before she died. I really would. Every time, I, you just don't know, mom, how much I appreciate how you and dad disciplined us, didn't spoil us, spanked us when we needed it. So turn over to Hebrews 12. Put something there in 1 Samuel 30. So we haven't talked about chastisement much lately. But Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, the writer of Hebrews says this, and he says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as children, My son, despise not thou the chasing of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him, for whom the Lord loves. He chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. That's everyone in this room without exception. Nobody's that good that they're not going to get a scourging from the Lord. Everyone. And he says in verse 7, If you will endure chastening, then God will deal with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? And let me just stop and say this. You know, all chastening is not necessarily because of some overt sin you're committing. It's a, it's a way of training. It can a lot of times just be a way of training. Like I said, David wasn't involved in gross sin. He'd sinned, though. He'd made a mistake. He was living in unbelief and was backslidden from the Lord. But God's plan for us as with David is to just get us back right. And we'll see, to partake of his holiness. In verse 8, but if he says, if you're without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are illegitimate, we'll say, and not sons. So everyone's going to get it. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. 
And shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of creation, the Father of spirits, and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But why does God chasten us? For our profit. He's not even really getting anything out of it. He does chastening for our good. That we might be partakers of his holiness. So everyone wants to be happy. That's the way you're really truly happy is when you're holy. Verse 11, now no, and there is the word no, not some, no chastening. Let me emphasize that. No chastening for the present when it's going on seems to be joyous, does it? But grievous, nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Because of that, he says, lift up those hands which hang down. You're being chastened. Get your hands up. You lost your job. Rejoice. God's doing a work in you. And the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed. So no one, no one, he says, if you like the pain of chastisement, there's something wrong with you. No one likes it, right? You need prayer if you do. But it says, nevertheless, afterwards, when it's all over, let God's chastening hand, if that's what's happening to you today, do its work in you. Or if he's just training you in some way, you're going through a tough time, it might not be because of sin, but let that training have its work in you, that you can be a partaker of his holiness because he's only doing it because he loves you. And let me ask you the next question I'm moving on to here. If you go back to 1 Samuel 30, so we just read in Hebrews 12 that when you were chastened, it's not pleasant, but there's an afterword to it. When it has a positive effect, and you can see, man, I'm glad that happened to me. Now that it happened, looking back, at the time, it was miserable. So what was the afterword for David? You know, many would say that the afterword, the joyous time for David was when he recovered all, when he got his wife and his kids back and all that. I would disagree with that. And I would say the greatest thing David recovered was not his family and his possessions. You know what it was? It was his relationship with God. He was back restored and had the presence of God. Because he had to repent, and I believe that's what happened here. When it says he was greatly distressed in verse 6, for the people spake of stoning him, because of the soul of the people was grieved every man for his son. And David had to encourage himself in the Lord. He hadn't been doing that, had he? Back in chapter 27, we saw he wasn't encouraging himself in the Lord and his promises, was he? So he had to repent. He had to encourage himself, first of all, that I know God is a forgiving God and has forgiven me for this, for what I've done, and is going to bring me back. And yes, I'm, he started going through those promises again from all the ones he had heard. And he's no longer saying, surely Saul's going to kill me. He's like, surely God will make me king. And that's what he's doing. And then he inquired of the Lord. And like we said, he wasn't doing that, none of those two things. He wasn't doing that back in chapter 27 when he came to Ziklag, was he? He wasn't encouraging himself in the Lord, and he wasn't seeking the Lord. He's just doing what he thinks is the best thing to do out of his own reasoning. He forgot the promises of God, and he inquired in his own heart. But guess what Ziklag did? It woke him up. He was far from God, and he realized that. And that's what chastisement, which all of us, if you haven't yet, it's coming your way. 
Just got saved last week. Guess what? Chastisement's coming that little man's way. Just got saved last week. He, that's a guarantee. But it's designed to do what? To bring us back into communion with God, to wake us up. So listen, we all know this verse, Revelation. You don't have to turn there. Revelation 3.17. The Laodicean church, what did they say? They said, because the Lord tells them, because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. So what my point is, if David getting everything back was the greatest blessing God for, could give him, then why would Jesus say that to these Laodiceans? They had everything in the natural. They were. That was a wealthy city. They were rich and increased with goods. And in the natural, had need of nothing. But what was Jesus' message to that church? You are pitiful. He says, don't you know you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? That was his message to the church. He says, you all are rich, but you need to buy some things that you don't have. You need to buy some trials, <laughs> some holiness, and get your eyes to where you can get some spiritual insight to what life is all about. And it's not about having all these things and having a good job and a nice house and all a happy little family and a nice family with obedient kids. Well, that's a blessing. None of that stuff's bad. But that's not what it's all about. Because he goes on to say, hey, that's a rebuke. As many as I love, there's that love again. I rebuke and chasten, is what he told the Laodiceans. Repent, therefore, be zealous, therefore, and repent. And he's telling them, he's rebuking them for their self-satisfied lifestyle. But he's saying, in doing that, I really love you to tell you that. That's what he told those people. And they need to repent. Repent of what? Because they're finding their highest pleasure in something other than God. That's what their problem was. Rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing. So if we look at the promises and the faith message as a means of recovering all, so to speak, in the sense of money, family, getting the wife, recovering all that, you've missed it by a thousand miles. That is not the message of the Bible not the main message it really isn't because when Jesus told them I'm rebuking you I'm chastening you and I love you and I want you to repent you know what he went on to say to them? here's what you need I'm standing at the door knocking I want to come into your heart and your life that's what really matters I stand at the door and knock and if any man will hear my voice and open the door the door to your heart, he says, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. That's Jesus' answer to a church that had everything except him in their lives. That was his answer. And I would say the message we get from David's life is restored communion with God is the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It is. So what happened when Adam and Eve sinned, what was the first thing they did? What was the first result of sin? It wasn't that they couldn't eat all that yummy fruit anymore and had to go out and work. You know what their first result of sin was? It said they ran and hid themselves from the presence of God. They'd lost that. And I'm telling you, that's the biggest thing they lost. Hid from the presence of the Lord is what they did. And just a few chapters after that, though, you know what we read about a man named Enoch? So we all want to make the rapture. But you know what it says about that guy? Doesn't talk about how many houses he had, how many children he had, how much money he had. But you know what it says about him? 
Every day he walked with God. That was what meant the most to him. And then one day it says, and he was not because God had taken him. And isn't that what we're all believing for? Well, we better be make sure all of us were walking with the Lord, number one. Not worrying about all the other things. And Abraham, how many times in the Bible? At least three times. You know what he was called? The friend of God. That's who his friend was. James 2, 2 Chronicles 20. So we're going through the Bible a little bit here. And what about Moses? The people are giving him trouble. And God says, look, you and the people, Moses, you can go on into the promised land, but I'm not going with you. My presence isn't going with you. And you know what Moses said? I could have the land flowing with milk and honey, all the blessings you're talking about. But he says, if you won't go in with us, it's not worth going into. I don't want to go. And that's the way it should be for all of us. Your presence doesn't go with me, Lord. Life's not worth living. David later wrote this in Psalm 27. He says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David said that is the one thing he desired above all else. Don't hear him talking about his wife and kids, and I'm sure he loved them. And taking it into the New Testament, what about the Apostle Paul? You read Philippians 3, and he says, I'm the Jew of Jews. I had all the privileges, honor, everything I had. He was a high and mighty Pharisee. Would have had all the money, all the upstanding privileges. And at the end, though, he says, it's all dung as far as I'm concerned. And he said, this is all I care about, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. That's what Paul wanted. So we talked about hell a few weeks back. What is the greatest horror of hell? You know what, to me, it's all bad. There's nothing good about hell. But the fact that you have for all eternity, you know that the face of God is turned against you. That has probably got to be the worst thing. The face of God is turned against you forever. He's your enemy. He hates you. That's terrible. Because just the opposite of that, you know what heaven is? Heaven is God coming down to earth. We're not going to be floating around, strumming harps, little spirit people. No, we're going to have glorified bodies, but God himself will live with us. So if you would, we'll look at one verse. Turn to Revelation 21. And I'm saying restored fellowship with God is the goal from Genesis, and it ends here in Revelation. Hold your finger there in 1 Samuel 30. But look in Revelation 21, verse 1. John writes, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, that new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. God coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In verse 3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling or the tabernacle of God is no longer in heaven, is it? Now we have to pray, our Father who art where? In heaven. We have to take it by faith. He's hearing our prayers, right? But now it says his tabernacle or his dwelling will be where? No longer in heaven. It will be where? On earth with us. 
his saints. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will live with them, dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall what? Be with them, be with us, and be their God. Hallelujah. I mean, his presence will be everywhere, no longer by faith. We'll see him then face to face, it says. Hallelujah. That will be a time. So listen, don't we all know there is no substitute, is there, for being in the presence of someone that you love? So those guys go overseas or even those guys in prison, they can have pictures of their loved ones. And that's all right to look at. It is no substitute, though, for being able to sit and hold someone's hand and look them in the face and talk to them. Is it a picture? Being in the presence. Watch them. And Jesus' disciples had lived with him. They touched him, John says, 1 John 1. Touched him, talked to him, ate with him, handled the word of life. They experienced him face to face back then. And three times in John 16, Jesus tells them, he says, your hearts are going to be filled with sorrow because I'm leaving you. I'm getting ready to die. And what was it they're going to miss? What all of us miss when someone we love dies, the presence and fellowship of the one that you love, right? But we're not without his fellowship here. 1 Peter 1.8 says this about us with the Lord, whom Jesus, having not seen, you love, in whom, though now, for the present time, now, you see him not. Yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So we could still have communion with him. How many people in here have experienced, tangibly experienced the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? A lot of hands going up. That's the way it should be. Amen. So it's not like we're totally without of it. And let me ask you that didn't raise your hands, do you not know the Lord in that way? Have you never experienced his tangible presence? Like we talked about Enoch, do you, do you walk with him daily? Is he the one that David had to learn and the Lord's teaching us to that we seek in time of trouble? He's the one that we should seek. Do you see God's hand guiding your life day by day? And when that's gone, guess what? You will be overjoyed, just like David was when it's restored. So I would just say, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord like that, and I know some in here don't know the Lord at all, but look, he's still knocking, isn't he? Saying, if you'll open the door of your heart, I'll come in and sup with you. That's the invitation. It's not too late. You're not in the grave. You haven't had a head-on wreck. God's still speaking to you. It's not too late. So back in 1 Samuel 30, if you'll go back there, please. The next thing I want to look at is once that fellowship with the Lord is restored, we recover all by the grace of God. And even that restored fellowship that David had, you know what? That is the grace of God. Repentance is a gift of his grace. And some in here have known that. They have gotten away from the Lord. Like Greg talked about, all of us to some degree have, and some more than others, some further away. And it starts there, doesn't it? Him bringing you back and granting you repentance, that's all the grace of God because he doesn't have to do that, does he? Never has to do that. But look, once that fellowship is restored, and that's the greatest blessing we, we should seek, right? 
but God, our Father, our Heavenly Father, just like you are with your kids. The thing that means the most to me is my kids like me. They want to be with me. But when that's settled and all that's settled, you love as a dad to bestow gifts on your children, don't you? And that's the way God our Father is. Look at the prodigal son. I'm saying that meeting of him and his father, I'm saying that dad knowing that son had a changed heart and had come back there and was willingly living with him. That was the greatest thing that father could experience. And as a result of that, out of his heart, he wants to bestow gifts on this son, not just accepting back like he stops him. He just let me be as one of the dad stops him. I'm not going to let you finish that. You're not going to be a slave. You're my son. Now, what does he say? Bring forth the best robe. Not something from Walmart. Put the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the best calf, the fatted calf, and kill it. And let us eat, he says, and be merry. For my son was lost, and he's brought back. Praise God. I'm rejoicing, the angels are rejoicing, and I want to bestow gifts on him. And we should receive them gladly, shouldn't we? The gifts he wants to give. And what was God's? Gracious word to David once he got his life back right with him. We just saw it. 1 Samuel 30, verse 8, what does he say? And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And here was the Lord's answer. Oh, pursue, for you will surely overtake them and without fail recover all. And that is where he's back in fellowship, and I'm saying his obedience and the grace of God are working hand in hand. You know why? Because you go on and read the story after that. He tells him to pursue after him. Well, guess what? He starts pursuing. You're looking at a vast desert. And these Amalekites are nomads. They don't have some particular place they're going. And you look at that vast desert. It's like, where would you begin? How would David have known where to go? He'd have been clueless. But we see the providence of God, his gracious providence being displayed, his sovereign, gracious providence. Because what happens? Here, an Amalekite has a sick servant, an Egyptian. And being full of the devil, you know what he did? He left him for dead. But God's hand was in it, didn't he? And that's God's grace in action. Because David revives that young man, and he's been three days with no food and water, and he was sick to begin with. God had to keep him alive for David to find him. But this is what God will do once you're back in fellowship with him. His grace just comes in and he's leading and guiding and sovereignly bringing things to pass. That word, you will recover all. So David revives the young man. And what does that young man do? He says, yeah, I can take you there. Just promise me you won't kill me. But David's not like that. I won't kill you. And takes them back to their families and their goods. He says, I know right where they're at. And David had no way of knowing. And that's God's hands in that. And David recovered all, didn't he? He could take no credit for it, just like us. You got a good job. God blessed you with something. He restored your health. Don't take credit for any of that. It's not because you're eating healthy and exercising. That doesn't hurt. It wouldn't hurt me. But I'm saying that's not the reason you're restored to health. David knew who was responsible for his restoration. So we're in chapter 30. Look in verse 19. Verses 19 to 25, listen to this. They find him, verse 18, David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives, and there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great. 
neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that he had taken to them. David recovered all, says it three times. And David took all the flocks and the herds which they drave before those other cattle and said, This is David's spoil. And David came to the 200 men which were so faint that they could not follow David, whom they had made also to abide at the brook Besor. And they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. Uh, and here's the kind of people David had to hang around in the wilderness. Then answered all the wicked men and men of Belial and of those that went with David. And they said, because they went not with us, we're not going to give them aught of the spoil that we have recovered, saved every man, his wife, and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. And then said David, you shall not do so, my brethren. With that which the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. Well, look, here's what wicked people do. Verse 22, they said, we will not give aught of the spoil that we have recovered. They're taking full credit for him. And David had to nicely, he was nice about it. These men have been loyal to him for years. He has to correct them in the next verse. He says, you shall not do so, my brethren. He's talking nice to him, but he sets them straight with that which the Lord has given us. He recognized it is God's grace from beginning to end that I'm back here restored and we have all this. We would have never found this. And if justice was done, we would have never had anything. It would have all stayed burned and our wives gone. He recognized that. Listen, everything we have is from the grace of God, is it not? Spiritually. Physically, anyway, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive, including our next breath? Now, if you did receive it, Paul wrote, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And that's the way the heathens boasted, but not King David. So look, what we're seeing here is David went from the utter hopelessness of that chastisement to what? The joy of full restoration. So look, turn over to Psalm 126. This is what David was like. Psalm 126, beginning in verse 1, it says, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. And then said they among the heathen, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears, they shall reap in joy. And he that goes forth and weeps, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And Israel, that's what this psalm is all about. They, because of their sins and their idolatry, had been carried away, far away, into captivity, into a foreign land. The city and the temple like David's city was laid waste. Nothing there. A severe chastisement from the Lord. And one day, unexpectedly, the king, Cyrus, it says God moved on his heart. And he says, listen, you can all go back home. I'll give it all back to you. I'll give you all the utensils. I'll give you whatever you need. You go back and you can build your city and build your temple. And when those people heard that, you know what? They said it was like a dream, but it wasn't. And when it, the reality of it all sunk in on them, it says our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues was singing. We had to go home. 
And I think the biggest thing was, though, they got to go home to the presence of God because he wasn't there in Babylon. He was, but he wasn't. Because worship was in Jerusalem and in Zion and in that temple being restored. That's where the presence of God. And it says their mouth was filled with laughter. God's bringing us back. And that's what I think. Imagine the reaction of David and his men when all of a the sudden they're looking into the eyes of their wives and children that they thought were gone at first. Imagine their reaction to that. I guarantee you they are like having a party, laughing and hugging and singing, just like these Jews were here in Psalm 126. And listen, isn't that the way it is when you go through one of those lonely, dark trials and you come through on the other side? At night, it's always the worst. And it's bleak. And you're just hanging on by a thread. It seems there's no hope, right? In the natural, no hope. And it might have even happened because of your sin just like with Israel, just like with David. And then, by God's grace, he delivers you or someone in your family. He get things right with him. James 5, it talks about that person laid out there, if they have sins, it could have been for sin. He says, God will forgive them and raise them up. And what happens? I mean, it's happened to me. I've had some really dark nights for myself and with my children and my wife. And God turns that captivity, oh man, that is the happiest time of your life. That baby's born after you've had it. Oh man, couldn't be a happier day. That's the happiest and most peaceful I've ever been when my children are born on that day, the next day, because I don't have a care or responsibility or nothing. And praise God, he's faithful. Amen. And so we know that in a lot of ways, right? God's grace brings that laughter and singing. And man, then you come to church with that. Oh, been faithful to God. The praise becomes alive, doesn't it? And you can't wait to get your hand up to be the first one to testify of God's faithfulness, right? Amen. The Lord has done great things for me. There's nothing wrong with saying that and sharing that. So listen, today we're having communion in recognition of the atonement of our Lord, right? You know what happened on the Day of Atonement? It's a yearly feast in Israel. Every 50 years, you know what happened? The year of Jubilee. And Jesus has brought us the year of Jubilee. Look in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. Luke 4, 18 and 19, it says this. He comes out of the wilderness. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and it said he came out full of the Spirit. In verse 18, he preaches this. The Spirit of the Lord, out of the prophet Isaiah, he's preaching is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, in verse 19, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the year of Jubilee. That's what that's talking about. He's anointed to preach the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years it would happen. A blast would go forth on the ram's horn on the Day of Atonement. It was a time of rest for all the poor. The poor could glean from the fields, get whatever they wanted to out of the fields. All the land that had been sold went back to the original owner. Didn't matter what had happened in between then. It all went back to the original owner for free. They recovered all for free. And every Israelite that had sold himself into bondage had to be released on that day, them and their children. And guess what? 
Jesus came and said, your bondage to the devil is over. I'm preaching now. It's the year of jubilee. You've been set free. But you know what? Here's the thing we need to understand. You know, he, there was somebody before him that wasn't there. Because this is the principle we need to see in the Bible. Who came before Jesus? John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist preach? A baptism of what? Repentance. So those multitudes coming to Jesus because multitudes came, not everybody, but multitudes came to John and were baptized by John. And John was pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, bring forth fruits of repentance. These people had repented. And as a result of that, God bestows his gifts through the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Restoration comes to him. And that's God's pattern. Chastisement, they'd been a long time. It'd been real quiet since Malachi coming into the New Testament. Chastisement, repentance, forgiveness, and blessings. That is God's pattern. But because of Jesus' atonement that we're going to partake of today, we are living forever in the year of Jubilee. It's now. Look what he says in verse 21. You're still in Luke 4. Look what the Lord says. And he began to say unto them, This day, that was back then, is this scripture what? It's not waiting to be fulfilled. He said, This day, this scripture, the year of Jubilee is fulfilled. And it's never going to be unfulfilled for God's people. So we're living in that time, aren't we? We're free. We really are free. Everything has been that we lost in the fall has been restored to us by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has recovered all. He has. The devil has no more rights to oppress us spiritually with his spirits, with his sickness. He doesn't, does he? I mean, what does it say up there? Surely. He told David, surely you will recover all. Surely, it says, he has borne our pains and carried our diseases. Is that not true? It is true. Amen, it is. And listen, if we've repented and our lives are right with the Lord, we need to believe it and fight for what is ours. We do. Just like David, he didn't just stay there. He went and got it. And it said they started fighting those Amalekites in the morning. Had to be a lot more of them than there were of David's men. Went all the way through nighttime. All day long he fought them and recovered all, didn't he? You turn to one last scripture, Matthew 15. Jesus has recovered all. So Matthew 15 and verse 29 says this, And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet. And what happened? He healed them, insomuch that the multitudes wondered when they saw that the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, it says they glorified the God of Israel. Do you know what it means to be maimed? Maimed means you have a disabled limb. A limb that can't do what the body is supposed to be able to allow it to do. Like the man with the withered hand. And we have people here that are maimed. And we have people here that are lame. And people here with a lot of other issues. And what does it say? They put them down at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he say he did with all of them? He healed them all in so much. So we're talking about when he restores the captivity of the Jews. 
said they thought it was a dream, and then their mouth was filled with laughter and singing? And what does it say to people when they see these miracles taking place, these multitudes miraculously by the Spirit of God healed like that? It said they wondered. This is like a dream we're seeing. But yet it wasn't, was it? Just like with Israel. Oh, and then it says their mouth was filled with joy. Look, and they glorified the God of Israel. The Lord has done great things. Amen? And can that not happen here? Like Scott said, we are a charismatic church. And it's for all of us. All of us should be convicted by this. What does Paul say repeatedly in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14? Seek earnestly the best gifts. He's got 13 in there, not so you can be glorified, but out of love for others. And we've got a lot of needs. And so who's going to be the people or person or people that are going to seek God and get his anointing like Jesus did and have that anointing on him to minister life? Because it's all been recovered. There's no reason for us not to have it. The year of Jubilee has already happened. We're not waiting for it to happen. That's why we read verse 21. The New Testament pattern. And isn't that what we saw in 1 Samuel 30? Repent. Come back to God and complete restoration. So, what's revival all about? Here's the famous revival verse. We'll end with this. 2 Chronicles 7. If I shut up heaven, here's the principle again, that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among the people, if that happens, that's the chastisement. God says this, if my people, which are called by my name as a result of that, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, he says, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now that is a word for all of God's people at all times. And like David Based on that, we can recover all. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us today and this life of David that we can see he wasn't a perfect man, Lord. Had many faults, but one thing he did have was a heart to seek you by your grace. You, you never let go of him and always brought him back. And taught him lessons, Lord, and you're teaching us lessons today. And this year coming up, Lord, just ask that we'll learn to submit to you, to be trained by you, to be brought into holiness by you, Lord, that we can see the restoration of all things, Lord. We need your help and the power of your spirit in this church. And we need to see your gifts manifested, Lord. And I just ask you'll put it on all of our hearts to pray for that, to seek your face, to see your power and your glory demonstrated, Lord, that we see things happen that we could only dream of and we'll realize it's not a dream that God has visited us. And we just ask you to do that for all of us here, Lord, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, how sweet must be the pleasure you find in your eternal Son. For long before you made the heavens, both you and he rejoiced as one. And long
Before you formed the angels Before you made the day and night Jesus exalted in your presence And he was all of your delight Father, what love you've shown to rebels That you would send your son so dear Into this world of grief and trouble To bring unworthy sinners near We'll never fathom how it pained you When you supplied the offering To rescue those who had disdained you To watch your dear son suffering Jesus, it fills our hearts with wonder That you would leave your heavenly place To take on flesh to thirst and hunger To save the ones who spurned your grace You came to forfeit every mercy To die that mercy we would find And then you hung along in darkness So in our hearts your grace would shine Jesus in glory Ascended Never again To leave your throne Because of you We are befriended Received and welcomed As God's own Father how sweet Now is your pleasure In us your daughter and your sons We will delight in you forever In Jesus you have made us one In Jesus you have made us one